just there are so many places uh so many pain points and struggles that no one is touching i think what you want to look for is a pain point that seems obvious to you that should be solved but that no one else really is interested in and mm -hmm. if you find that then there's there's a lot of opportunity for you i think too many people are trying to create either a copycat product or something similar. It, it's not particularly unique. It's one of the reasons I wanted to get out of my original business. I just didn't feel like I could differentiate myself enough from competition. I think really finding a niche problem to get super passionate about will give you a lot of business opportunities. And it'll also bring a lot of people out of the Raptors who are interested in that same thing and support you on that journey. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's uh, grown several businesses to seven and eight figure companies, as well as a CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And today we have another great guest on the podcast, Logan Herzog. Is that close enough, yep. Herzog? Yep, you nailed it. <laughs> All right. And Logan, uh, he started out his, I guess, his career as education in social media marketing. And uh, while in school, he went out to businesses and offered to go work for them for free in order to learn and to try things out, which I, hey, kudos to him. Way to get an experience. After that, he worked with uh, Bamboo HR for a period of time after graduating. And then he decided to... Um, go a different route and start working with, um, I think it was or going abroad, moving abroad, moving around, working with accelerators and other companies and getting that going, realizing that model is um, work better in maybe Latin America as opposed to some of the other countries who tried it out. And I think you're now still in Latin America. Is that right? I am. Yeah. I'm based in Costa Rica. All right. So we'll get to hear all about your time abroad. So with that, welcome to the podcast, Logan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I gave a very short snippet of your uh, your journey. Maybe if we wanted to now jump back and start at the beginning of your journey, let's uh, hear a bit, hear a little bit about how you got to where you're at today. Yeah, I mean, so I, I never really wanted to be an entrepreneur growing up. Um, I actually had seen a lot of people's businesses fail, so I kind of thought I was going to go this corporate route. Um, but as soon as I started studying in school, and a few things happened. One, I, I took some entrepreneurship classes and it was, I think I, I kind of started to resonate with me. Um, mm. But what I also realized is the stuff I wanted to do, like in the digital world, there really weren't a lot of full-time jobs for, right? Like I was learning a lot about Facebook advertising and stuff like that. And unless you're doing kind of Google PPC at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of like full-time roles. So it kind of mm. was pretty clear that I was going to have to jump in um, and do my own thing if I really wanted to like use the skill sets that I had built. Um, but honestly, like uh, one of the more formative uh, times of my life was what you were saying, going out and just doing a bunch of stuff for free or for basically free for a lot of people um, in the social world, you know, trying with content production and running ad campaigns and things so like let's that. Let's dive into that just because I think it's yeah. an interesting approach to say, hey, I need education. I've got, I want to go out and try things out. And a lot of people saying, hey, if they're not going to pay me, I'm not going to work for free. And you take the opposite approach of it's more important to get the learning and the education and try things out and the money will kind of follow later on or the, you know, the opportunities. So did you just go out and just say, hey, here's a, here's a whole bunch of companies I think that need social media marketing. I'm going to go just pitch them that I'll work for free to get the experience. Or how did you go about saying, hey, I'll work for free? That's a good question. I think I started out doing, cause I didn't know anything about like outbound at the time or prospecting. So I think what I did is um, I went to like Craigslist and just looked things for like, you know, 10 bucks an hour, um, took a few 
uh, well, actually before that, I, I found those jobs and was like, hey, I'll do this for free for like a month. Let me try it out, right? Um, and in school, I, I had to, like a lot of it was project-based. You had to go find somebody to right? um, get at that and just started. It was probably a period between the time that I started actually like doing stuff for free and when I actually got like a legitimate, not even like a legitimate job, but actually like somebody paid me something that I thought was like pretty close to market rate, you know? Um, and it was a year of just kind of exploration. So did you go and so how long did you typically work for someone for free? Was it, Hey, uh, work for a month and they say, Hey, you're doing an awesome job. We better pay you. We like what you're doing. Or is it, Hey, we work for free. And until they, until you finally said, this is not going anywhere and I've learned what I can, then I'm going to, how, you know, so what was the kind of that? How long did you work for free and how did that transition? Yeah. I mean, it normally wasn't very long. It was normally for a very specific kind of task, right? Like, Hey, I want to run a, a campaign that but my, in the ad world so you kind of think in terms of campaigns not necessarily in like super long-term relationships in that regard so i was running like a month-long campaign for a mexican restaurant in provo or something right like that that kind of stuff um, and then eventually i would get introduced to people and, and start taking on bigger projects but it was very kind of project-based for free um for about a year and I, there's that there's that quote in the the joker right if you're i, I don't he's not the one who came up with it, but if you're good at something, never do it for free. The problem was I wasn't good at anything yet, right? So like I had to go out and see, what am I naturally inclined to? What don't I know? Which is one of the hardest things when you're trying to do things for people. So like, I, I felt like it was worth being able to go do a bunch of this stuff for free to figure out, okay, here's where I think I can add value. Here's where maybe not so much, so. So, and I know where Dwelly got just one small part of your journey, but it's an good. one other question for you. So you did that. What were some of the things you learned? Was it, I guess, back in, was it a good avenue to learn things? Did you learn a lot? Would you recommend it? Was it worthwhile? Would you say, hey, I should have gone out and tried to get interns so I would have made some money or I've learned a whole bunch and made a lot of good connections and it's absolutely worthwhile. Kind of give us a flavor yeah. for that. I mean, thankfully, uh, probably after like six, seven months, it turned into actually like a paying job. And I, I had some other sources of income at the time. So really it was like, okay, maybe I'm working 80 hours a week, but I'm able to immediately jump into my field. So I think it was totally worth it. Like, I think, I think you could probably go about it a little bit better now where like, if you, if I had known like some of the really a bit, had a little bit more, more clear of a direction, I could have gotten better at something faster and then started charging for it. But I think considering the fact that I just knew nothing at the beginning, um, I'm pretty happy. I don't think I changed a whole lot about that first year. Plenty I would change after that. But in that first year, I don't, I think I was, I did it about as well as I possibly could have. So well, hey, kudos to you. And I think that one, it gives you a good story. And two is if I was an employer and I'd say, hey, this guy's either work, is willing to work for free from us because he's so confident or he wants to learn and or, hey, he's got a whole bunch of experience doing things with a whole bunch of other people. I think that speaks well, whether or not you're trying to get a job, learn or get experience to do it on your own. So now moving yeah. forward, so I don't dwell too much on that, although I, yeah. I'm sure I could uh, pick your brain a little bit on it, more on it. So you did that. You worked for free for a period of time. Um, you know, learned a lot, then kind of now continuing on the journey. What'd you do after that? So eventually it turned into a role at Bamboo HR. So, it, it, and something completely unrelated, to be honest, I was doing project management, but um, like, I think just kind of all the different things that I had done, I, I showed them enough that they thought, okay, he's, he's scrappy. And that's kind of the theme. The thing that I lean on the most is, you know, I'm, I'm not an Ivy league graduate or anything like that. Like my scrappy nature and willingness to just go figure things out has helped. Mm. But I've kind of had these, these really critical points where I've gone from entrepreneurship into a role that kind of launched me into the next phase and, and working at a bona fide SaaS company with great leadership 
well structured. It really kind of helped me see what company, how companies are run in the tech space, uh, what, how a good company is run. Um, but very quickly, I realized um, I was doing project management, and I am not a good project manager, as I learned very quickly. Um, and they were gracious, and they invested a ton in, in helping me, and I have nothing but good things to say uh, about my time there. But I think pretty much six months in, it was like, shoot, I'm going to have to kind of figure something else out, because I think at some point, it's just going to just going to be a problem. So I started figuring out ways. That's when I really started getting into prospecting and like, uh, you know, building my own pipeline from scratch, just that, that time period while I was there, but it was very formative to, to see what it was like inside of a, a real tech company. So. Okay. So, and diving into that, just, so you worked with them, you were saying, Hey, I'm not the type of, was it, Hey, I'm not the personality type or I hate this, or I don't have the right skills. Or how did you kind of come to the realization, Hey, managing and doing project manager isn't for me. Yeah. So in, in, from a team, I, I think I was a really good fit with the team and I'm, I'm, I'm still consider myself good friends with many of them today. It was a very tight knit group and they were very invested in me. That's something that anybody who, who knows about Bamboo HR is probably not surprised at that. They're a very good company with good leadership. What I realized that was a couple of things. One, um, I wasn't quite experienced enough in marketing to get a marketing role and that's where I wanted to go. And two, I really wasn't naturally inclined towards project management. And I thought it's not really where I want to build my career, but I'm kind of stuck on this path. Um, I'm not performing that great. So it's hard to justify like leaping to another department. Everybody wanted to work there. So it was very competitive getting other. Kind of became clear to me that like the only way really forward is to make a pretty big leap outside. I don't think transferring internally or, or continuing down the project management path was for me. I think a lot of it was a mixture. I learned a lot that that's helped me as an entrepreneur for sure. But I think I realized I'm not going to be top 5%. I have no chance of being top 5% in the world at this. I think I can at something else. I want to focus where I really think I can excel and like double down on my strengths. So. Well, I think I, that, you know, again, kudos to you. I think that that's one thing, you know, sometimes you get too comfortable and say, man, well, I could figure it out or I can do an okay job or I can be decent at it. And, you know, you just kind of get almost stuck or you're just saying, Hey, you know, I don't want to make that change is hard. It takes a lot of time and effort. I have to kind of reinvent myself. So why not stick where, where I'm at, especially if I'm getting paid for it. And then I think kudos to you again, it's in the sense that, if, you, if you're not doing something you love, if it's not something that you really are passionate about or that, you know, fits your skill sets to continue down the path of, hey, I'll do it just because I'm getting paid for type of a thing. I think it always will handicap your career. So I think that that's certainly, you know, yep. interesting, the self-realization. Hey, I may not be able to excellent or may not be the rock star in this area, but I think there are other areas I could in. So let's make that transition now. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. So you did that and you, you said, okay, I'm going to make the transition. So how, did, where did you transition to? How did you transition and where did you go? Where did you decide was your strengths that were going to lie? Yeah, I wanted, so I had really taken an interest in advertising, social advertising. Um, for many reasons, I thought it was one of the more like uh, visceral, like trackable benefits out of social media for, for our company. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, there weren't really any like full-time jobs dedicated to that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to start trying to contract. And really what I, what I, decided to do was who are the people who are going to be most open to somebody with like not the the best like academic background or something right and um mm -hmm. i've decided startups were it i loved working at a, a tech company bamboo probably wasn't exactly a startup when i got there but it was definitely a similar culture and i thought these are the kind of people i want to work with um so i decided to start reaching out to people who had just graduated from like Y Combinator, 500 startups, all these big tech accelerators and said, hey, I'll work um, I'm a lot cheaper than Bay Area salaries, but let me run some of your go-to-market stuff. So I built up this pipeline and kind of a funny story, the day that I went in to 
uh, kind of announced to the team that I would be leaving, um, the morning of both the clients that I had signed called and canceled. So I had, I had to go into this like kind of big announcement moment and pretend how excited I was to start my business when I was really quitting my job and had basically zero clients uh, out of nowhere. So it's kind of a funny moment and like a realization of how much pipeline you have to give yourself to make sure it's sustainable. Um, but I, I jumped in and thankfully a few months later was able to work something out and survived and scraped my way through until I, I landed a, a pretty solid contract gig with a, a prominent member of a, a Y Combinator cohort. And then what happens there in Y Combinator is they have like all these internal referral systems and our campaign went really well. Mm. And so my client went in and said, hey, this guy did a really good job. And I got like 20 people interested out of the gates. So uh, that, that was kind of when I, I really started to take off and was actually, you know, making okay money for the first time really ever. Um, but especially as an entrepreneur. So, mm, okay. No, I think that that is interesting. So, so now you did that, you moved, you made that transition. So kind of walk us along. So where did that lead you to? How did you get into accelerators? How did you move yep. abroad and kind of where did that, how did that play into everything? So I spent the next probably year and a half really just completely focused on early stage startups. My, my niche was I run your ad campaigns when you're first going to market and you need to figure out who your customer is. Mm. Um, that event, I was doing a lot of outreach to accelerators, trying to build partnerships. It, it wasn't the greatest, greatest like lead generation channel as I realized, but I was making good relationships in Silicon Valley without being there. So I continued to do it. Uh, and I eventually ended up on a phone call with a guy named Sean Shepard, who is, um, uh, in my opinion, one of the better, one of the best kind of sales influencers out there on LinkedIn, specifically around tech. And he had an accelerator called GrowthX, which is completely focused on go-to-market strategy. So it's a, it's an accelerator that doesn't really worry so much about product development or things like that, which is how most folk were most focused, but it's all about how are we going to sell this? Who's your customer? And they had kind of this proprietary go-to-market approach. Um, that they'd turn into an accelerator program. So we were on a call and it was very clear within like two seconds that it wasn't a fit because I was doing a lot of B2C at the time. He was completely B2B, but he had mentioned just in passing, yeah, I'm actually kind of struggle. There's, there's this program in Malaysia that we're trying to launch, but I'm trying to find the right people to go. And I had been for years interested in living overseas. I, I hadn't pulled the trigger because nothing was really taking me there, right? I didn't want to just go. I didn't feel quite financially stable enough to just make the leap on my own. Mm. Um, but literally three days before this call with Sean Shepard, I had been researching places. My wife's like, you're always looking at Latin America, but what about Asia? It could be kind of interesting. So I look and I found Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, which I'm like, wow, it's actually a pretty cool city. It's very cost effective. And like, what a, what an interesting experience that would be. Three days later, I'm on the phone with Sean and he says, yeah, there's this program in Malaysia that I'm really trying to get going. But I don't feel like I have the right team. And I'm like, well, I was literally looking into living in Malaysia three days ago. So if you need somebody... You know, <laughs> I talk to me. Yeah, I, I just decided it was one of those moments where it's like, okay, I don't know where this is coming from, but like, I kind of feel like it's one of those once in a life, lifetime moments when it's like everything sort of lines up and you just have to say yes. And so I, I basically was like, well, let me go. I'll go for you. If he, he wanted somebody from the States who had worked with tech companies in the past, understood how the Valley worked to go out there and kind of bring that culture. Um, and about, well, about six months later, I was on a plane to KL. First time I'd ever left the country uh, on a plane to go to go move there. So, so you, you moved there and what, you know, did it work out just like you thought? Did you picture? Did it work out well? Was it a failure? Kind of how did it go? And how did that, you know, that foreign experience and trying something new or go for you? 
Well, I mean, it set the foundation for everything I'm doing now. So it was absolutely critical. I loved living there. I loved the team I worked with. Um, and I learned a lot about go-to-market strategy. It's where I shifted from B2C to B2B and realized that's really where I wanted to focus for the, the future. It's also where I, I learned and, and kind of developed this affinity for what most people call kind of developing markets. I don't necessarily love that term, but we'll, for lack of a better term, let's say developing or emerging tech markets. And uh, I realized like there's so much to do here. There's so much going on. And I actually was intending to stay in Asia. Um, there was some issues with our immigration um, where I was not able to actually stay in Malaysia, sadly. And um, I had another opportunity kind of, again, all these, all these opportunities leading to jobs that launch another uh, venture by somebody to go lead sales back in Latin America because I spoke Spanish. But my time in Malaysia was probably, in my opinion, like the most critical era. So it kind of helped me use all the skills I've been developing in a new way, understanding a completely new I really felt like this is where I fit. I think doing ads and things like that, there's a lot of people doing it. I didn't feel like I was differentiated enough. I didn't feel like I was really offering a lot new to the market. But when I was in those regions, I felt like I had a lot to offer there, but I also had a lot to offer to people back home who had no idea what was going on in these regions. So this is my niche. I think everybody's looking for that. And it took me moving half literally to the opposite end of the globe from where I live to figure that out. Um, but it was, yeah, it was incredibly formative. So, so and you did that in Asia now, and you mentioned a bit of immigration problems. Give me an idea of, you know, you did Asia for how long was it? We were there for about, I was in Malaysia for nine months, and then we spent three months in Vietnam while we were waiting to see if the uh, the visa thing would go through. The issue was there was a government change right when I got there. Mm. So it's some, you always have to watch that when you're immigrating because policies change, maybe not through legislation, but the way they're handled, the way they're interpreted can change. And so I, I got right at the end of a golden immigration era in Malaysia where it was very easy and even kind of like go back and forth a lot on the tourist visa. It was much more lax. As soon as I got there, things were really, um, you know, they're, they're shifting. There's, I won't get into whether that's good or bad or not, but uh, that's the reality. And it just came to the point where we couldn't keep doing it the way we were doing it. We weren't getting the right visa. Um, it was time to find something more permanent. Mm. And to, we spent three months in Vietnam, pretty nearby, just to see if we could figure it out while we were out of the between not being able to figure it out and then between some circumstances in my western hemisphere where I actually knew the language just made sense but uh, I was I was intended to stay in, in Asia for years so mm. so is that so is that what necessitated you to go from Asia over to Latin America was the uh, immigration and the visa issues yeah it's where so I had to start finding another place to work because I had also ramped down my and to kind of figure out a different direction to go um, I had gotten hired initially by a company in Southeast Asia, but once we, with all the immigration stuff and then realizing I spoke Spanish, um, they had an office in Costa Rica and said, well, why don't you just go there? And I, I recently lost a family member. So being closer to home actually made a lot of sense. So being within a three hour flight of my family was a big selling point at the time and being able to speak the language. So it was, uh, it all happened very fast. You know, it went from, you know, we left our apartment in Malaysia expecting to come back and we never came back uh, which was which was pretty wild it was it was all very unexpected but um as we'll find out later it all worked out for the best so 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 how was it? so did you just leave all of your stuff you never went back to your apartment everything all the personal effects and everything else just <laughs> had to be left 
my wife and I always joke. So there's not a lot of things that we really regret, but there are like two or three moments in our lives where we really wish we could see the future because we would have packed completely differently if we had known we were never coming back. We got we got most of our stuff back to the States. We still don't have most of it back here just because mm. like a lot of it by the time it got to the States, like we didn't really need it anymore. And it's quite a, quite pricey to get it to Costa Rica specifically. So yeah, we, we had, thankfully we had really, really amazing friends on the ground who got into our apartment and packed our stuff up and were able to get it to the U.S. for us. But that was quite the ordeal. And it's one of the few things where like, man, I, I kind of regret that choice. So um, yeah, we, we fully expected to come back. So well, I guess uh, you know things don't always go as you plan, but it. Uh, nope. But then you said, you know, you talked about, you know, you're kind of doing the the model, and and if I'm putting words in your mouth, certainly correct. No, you're good. But you're doing, you know, the doing in the model in Asia, it was ups and downs, you know, trying to do the the startup venture and kind of those type of things. And it seems like you kind of mentioned that Latin America or that kind of fit the model better, or that the fit well, the, what you're trying to do better here's here's what happened like i i was really getting deep like i was going into places like cambodia and indonesia and, and learning more about the startup markets there and i realized that like there was a lot of need for somebody who had a deep understanding of silicon valley culture but could also really have a deep understanding of local culture and kind of bridge that gap right hmm. um a few things happened one i like malaysia was clearly the place i wanted to live there wasn't really another place in southeast asia that i thought would be as easy um, for us as a family to be like without having to learn a local language and such. And I realized if I really want to go to the depths that I want to go to um, with kind of connecting these two the out emerging markets to, to Silicon Valley, it makes so much more sense to do it somewhere where I can communicate beyond like the expat bubbles. Right. I was very, very limited in what I can do outside of, you know, the, the core of a, of a city. So now that I'm in, in Latin America, I can go, way off the beaten path. I can communicate with people. I, I also think there's a lot of reasons why Latin America makes more sense if a, if a US entity is interested in investing or doing business with somebody outside of their own borders for, for a number of reasons. Um, I didn't necessarily have all that planned in my head when I got there. It, it kind of revealed itself as I, as I came to the region and realized, oh, this does fit a lot better. But there was definitely this feeling of, I really wanna do what I wanna do I'm going to need to understand the local language and culture so much deeper than I, I can right now. So that's, that's one of the main reasons Latin America made more sense. Okay. So now you moved to Latin America, you, you start out doing that. One, I guess, a couple of questions. Was it kind of having to reinvent yourself? Was it, you know, did you have to, kind of, was it building in what you previously done? Did you have to reinvent yourself and how did that go and how is it going today? Yeah. So it, I had to reinvent myself a little bit because the dynamics are so different here. Um, almost to an uncomfortable extent when you're a, a, an American in, in Southeast Asia, you have a lot of doors open to you simply because of that. You know, you call what you want. I, I don't think it's always a good thing, but uh, when you come to Latin America, people size you up. There's a lot more of a political history here with the United States and, and these countries. So they really size you up and figure out what you're about. Um, you have to show that you're not just a typical gringo. I mean, it, I was very rusty on Spanish when I first got there, but um I, it had been five years since I'd spoken it re, uh, frequently. Now that I'm, I'm better than I was before, it's a lot easier for me to kind of prove myself to people and show that I, I genuinely have interest here and I want to understand what's going on. But I had to approach it very differently, much more nuanced than I would have in Southeast Asia. And I think that's a good thing. It helps me understand things better than I, I would have before. Um, I think that Southeast, when you're talking about foreign investment, specifically in the venture capital world, uh, kind of the sexy places right now are places like Africa and, and China or up until maybe last year, China, um, simply because of the massive growth potential and people don't see that same potential in Latin America 
Um, there's, again, a lot of things are more politicized. There's a lot of other barriers. But when you think about it, it's basically two languages you need to understand to be able to tackle the entire region. Although, I mean, anybody from Latin America watches is going to be pissed off. But like, <laughs> they're pretty similar culture-wise. Like, obviously not everybody. There's big differences even between neighbors. But like, from a foreigner perspective, navigating the culture from a regional perspective is much easier than if you're doing that in in Southeast Asia, where every border you cross is a completely different language, religion, customs, and everything, right? So it's like less on people's radar, but I actually think it's a better fit for what I'm basically the, the thesis statements that I have. Mm. So I have to approach it very differently than I did before because everybody's like, oh yeah, I guess Asia's growing fast. I should look into it here. People are like, well, Latin America is not very stable, right? When that's not necessarily true. Um, so yeah, lots of reinvention, but it, it's coming along. I found a bit more of a love group in the region than in the U.S. still, which I, I expected. Um, so I still feel like it's a long-term goal to really help uh, U.S. investors and founders really grasp the vision of what could happen here. But from a local perspective, I feel like things are moving forward a lot faster than they would have in Asia, for sure. Okay, no, that's cool. So now as we reach towards the end of the podcast, we always, I always ask two questions. So now, now maybe we'll jump to that. So the first question I always ask, is within your journey, what uh, was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I think by far the worst business decision I ever made was shutting down my existing business a little too fast before I had the next one lined up. Uh, wasn't completely in my control, but for a quick context is I decided to take a, a C-level role at a local uh, fund, kind of an accelerator program in Asia. Um, and then I decided to ramp down my existing business. Problem was that job fell through and then I had no business or job and I'm stuck in Vietnam with like money literally running down to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, give me, I, I gave my, you know, after eight months, I was in a better place financially than I was before. But I think I, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, when you see the vision, you know where you want to go, you just want to act. And that's very much my nature. And I think 99% of the time it works in your favor, but that 1% where it doesn't, it really nails you hard. So I think I would have eased in, I would have um, tried to make that a smoother transition and not put all my eggs in that next basket and assuming it was gonna be a kind of a bumpy ride. I think it would have made a lot more, a lot better business decisions there. But I think now I'm um, able to be a little more disciplined when I'm trying to move to the next phase, whether it's in a business or a new business or even just personal development, I'm willing to give it a little more time before jumping in head first first so oh, makes perfect sense okay now we'll ask the, the second question which is so now and you work a lot with startups and small businesses and helping them and, and gone, going through a lot with them so this should be right up your alley which is if you're talking to someone that's just getting into startups or small businesses what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them it's, there are so many places uh so many pain points and struggles that no one is touching i think what you want to look for is a pain point that seems obvious to you that should be solved but that no one else really is interested in that if you find that then there's there's a lot of opportunity for you i think too many people are trying to create either a copycat product or something similar it's not particularly unique it's one of the reasons i wanted to get out of my original business i just didn't feel like i could differentiate myself enough from competition i think really finding a niche problem to get super passionate about will give you a lot of business opportunities and it'll also bring a lot of people out of the Raptors who are interested in that same thing and support you on that journey. So I think that's, that's what the last five years of my life have been about. I think I'm only now just finally getting to the place where I feel like I have that takes a lot of work. um, But it is your, uh, your chance of success are just so much higher when you get to that point. No, I, I, that, that makes perfect sense. And and that's great advice. So 
now as we jump towards the end, people want to reach out to you. They want to connect with you. They want, they're in Latin America and they want to help with startups or in the U.S. and they want to know how to break into that market or in Asia or any or all of the above. What's the best way to reach out to you, connect with you? Reach, yeah, search for me on Twitter. It's Logan S. Herzog at, or not at, that's my Twitter handle, Logan S. Herzog. Um, that's where I, I tweet, I put out a, basically a daily thread um, talking about uh, my experiences launching in Latin America. Sometimes it'll be about the growth side and the more operational perspective. A lot of times it's just about the region and, and things that I think are cool. So if you want to hit me up there, that's great. If you, I think that's a good way to learn a little bit more about what I'm about. All right. Awesome. Well, I certainly encourage everybody to, to follow you, reach out with you, and to connect up with you. Well, Logan, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Now, for everyone else that's uh, a listener, make sure if, if you have a journey to tell and you'd like to come on the uh, podcast to share your journey, feel free to go to inventivejourneyguest.com, sign up to tell your journey. And if you're a listener, make sure to click subscribe so that uh, you can get notifications of all the new episodes as they come out. And lastly, if you ever need help with uh, patents or trademarks, feel free to reach out to us at Miller IP Law. We're always here to help. Logan, thank you again. It's been a pleasure and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks, Devin. Appreciate you having me.